0: Okay, Um, we're continuing together our study of chapter 31 of our Confession of Faith. So if you have your Confession of Faith, turn please to chapter 31. And um, Cindy, do you have yours? Okay, good. All right. And uh, chapter 31 is on page 40. And um, it deals with the state of man after death and the resurrection from the dead. And what we've been exploring is what does the Bible teach about what happens to us after we die? And um, we have seen that man is a two-part being. He has a material part, which is his body, and he has an immaterial part, which is his soul. And what death is, we saw, is the separation of the soul and the body. When the soul leaves the body, that's what defines death. And so, what happens to the body after death? Well, we know very well, don't we, what happens to the body? It returns to the dust. Uh, It's placed in the ground, and it uh, sees corruption. Uh, But the real question uh, on everybody's mind is what happens to the soul after death? And the answer is, is that um, the soul doesn't cease to exist, uh, nor does it go into a state of unconsciousness. Um, But rather, the soul uh, of everyone immediately goes back to God. And um, that's where we wound up last time. That's where we finished our study together last time. So let's read paragraph one and we'll pick up where we left off. The bodies of men after death return to dust and see corruption, but their souls... Which neither die nor sleep, having an immortal subsistence or existence, immediately return to God who gave them. So, whether someone is a Christian or a Hindu or an atheist or whatever they are, when they die, their bodies go into the ground and their souls immediately go to God. Now, when the souls of people go to God, God divides them into two categories. They are the saved and they are the lost. Our confession talks about the state of the souls of the righteous and the state of the souls of the wicked. Uh, If you'll notice in the middle of the paragraph, just after the second footnote, it says the souls of the righteous being then made perfect in holiness are received into paradise where they are with Christ. And behold the face of God in light and glory, waiting for the full redemption of their bodies. That's what happens to the righteous when they appear before God. And now it talks about what happens to wicked, the wicked. It says, And the souls of the wicked are cast into hell, where they remain in torment and utter darkness, reserved unto the judgment of the great day. Besides these two places for souls separated from their bodies, the scripture acknowledges none. So, fundamentally, when people die and they go to God, their souls go to God, God either receives their souls into heaven or he sends their souls into hell. And that's what happens to them. So, um, no one goes to any third place. There's no third category. No one is annihilated. A lot of people say, well, when you're dead, you're dead and that's it. It's over. Well, it's not over. Why is it not over? Because the human soul is eternal, that is, it never ceases to exist, and it never goes into unconsciousness. It's always conscious, it always exists somewhere. There's only two possible places where it can be, in heaven or in hell. And where they wind up depends upon what their relationship was with Jesus Christ while they were here on the earth. Those who are righteous are righteous because they have believed in Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. And uh, those who are wicked are wicked because they have rejected Jesus Christ as their Lord and their Savior. And um, let's turn for a moment, please, to John chapter 3, the Gospel of John, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. John's the fourth gospel. And we'll look at chapter 3. The Gospel of John, chapter 3. And we'll start out at that most famous of verses, verse 16, John three sixteen. John chapter 3 and verse 16, it says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, That whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. So we see the two possibilities, there: perishing or everlasting life. And we see the difference between them if they believe or if they don't believe in God's only begotten son. Now notice verse 17. For God sent not his son to the world to condemn the world. Jesus didn't come to pronounce judgment on the world the first time he came. But that the world through him might be saved. Jesus came to save people. Came to save them so they wouldn't perish in hell. Now verse 18 is the verse I want us to pay special attention to. He that believes on him is not condemned. I think that's just about my favorite verse in the whole Bible. He that believes on him is not condemned. And if we want to not be condemned when we appear before God after we die, then it's imperative that in this life that we believed in Jesus Christ as our Savior, that we trusted him for the forgiveness of our sins. that We had faith in him as our Redeemer. Now notice the next phrase, but in contrast to that, verse 18, he that believeth not is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. Do you know what you need to do to be condemned? Nothing. You're born condemned already. In order to move into a state of not being condemned, You have to believe, verse 18, he that believes on him is not condemned, but he that believes not is condemned, and he's condemned already because he's not believed, and so the difference between condemnation and no condemnation is do you believe or do you not believe, that's it, do you believe in Christ as your Lord and Savior from sin, or do you not believe, and so that's the difference between those who are the righteous and those who are the wicked. Those who are commended and those who are condemned. So anyway, that's what um, makes the difference on the day of judgment is, did you believe? God so loved the world. He gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. So the Bible is very clear about what the terms are upon which we are accepted by God into heaven or we are rejected by God into hell. That's the difference between the righteous and the wicked. It is not so much about their behavior, although there is a distinct difference, but it is about whether they had faith or not in Christ. Now obviously those who believe in Christ are transformed by Christ and they do live a different pattern of life. They do good works. They do obey God's law as the dominating characteristic of their life. And with the wicked, those who reject Christ and don't want anything to do with Christ, they violate God's law as the dominating characteristic of their life. And sometimes wicked people can occasionally do good things. And sometimes Righteous people can occasionally do bad things, but the dominating characteristic demonstrates the presence or the absence of faith in Christ. So let's go back to our confession then and talk about what happens to the souls of the righteous. It says, <clears throat> four five things about the souls of the righteous the state of the souls of the righteous first of all they're made perfect in holiness notice the souls of the righteous being then made perfect in holiness now when a person becomes saved they are called saints or holy people that is There's a fundamental separation from sin, but there's not a complete or a perfect separation from sin. And as Christians, we still from time to time fall into sin. But the wonderful thing about going to heaven is, is that when we get there, our souls will be made perfect so that we will never fall into sin ever again. Heaven is a place of sinless perfection. And that's wonderful because as Christians, Though we still commit sin, we hate doing it, and we struggle against it, and it's a constant source of, uh, of difficulty and trouble for us. Um, so let's turn, please, in our Bibles to Hebrews twelve twenty three, and notice the state of those who are in heaven. Hebrews chapter 12. So that's kind of in the middle of the New Testament, Hebrews chapter 12. In Hebrews chapter 12, beginning at verse 22, he talks about the state of those who um, are in heaven. And um, he uses a number of terms to describe heaven. And then he describes the the creatures that are in heaven. And... Um, of course, to the relationships that we have with God and with his Son Jesus. now notice Hebrews twelve and verse twenty two he says, "But you are come unto Mount Sion, which is Mount Zion, and unto the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. So that's the place we go to the Bible on earth it talks about Jerusalem, okay well, there's a heavenly Jerusalem, okay, and that's the eternal city in which we're going to live in heaven. But you're come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. Now notice into an innumerable company of angels. Not only are we going to have a wonderful city to live in in heaven, we're also going to be with angels in heaven. We don't become angels, but we're with them, okay. And then it says in verse 23, to the general assembly and church of the firstborn, which are written in heaven. That is, so all those who are born of Christ um, are in heaven, and they form a general assembly. It says, and to God, the judge of all, God is in heaven. Now notice, and to the spirits of just men made perfect. So what's the condition of our spirits when we're in heaven? Answer, they are made perfect. Now notice verse 24, and to Jesus, he's in heaven. Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant. And to the blood of sprinkling that speaketh better things than that of Abel. Now there's a lot there and and we could spend a great deal of time explaining all those things and their implications. But notice the phrase, to the spirits of just men made perfect. Now, on earth, we're justified people. We are just people now, but we're not perfect people. There, those who are justified will also be perfected in holiness. Let's turn, please, to Revelation chapter 21. Well, let's stop at 1 John on the way, okay? So it's Hebrews, and then First um, and Second Peter, and then First John. Hebrews James 1st and 2nd Peter and then John. The book of 1st John not the gospel of John but 1st John chapter 3 Okay, it says, "Behold what manner of love the Father has bestowed upon us that we should be called the sons of God." Therefore, the world knows us not because it knew him not. Beloved, now are we the sons of God, and it does not yet appear what we shall be, but we know that when he shall appear, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. Now, the promise there is that right now we're considered to be the sons of God, but we're not like Jesus perfectly, we're like Jesus substantially. That's why we're called Christians, C-H-R-I-S-T, I-A-N-S, okay, because we're supposedly little Christs. That's what we are, and that's how we ought to be living, is like replicas of Christ. That's what it means to be a Christian, a follower of Christ, one who strives to live like Christ and be like Christ, okay? So... A Christian is a follower of Christ. He's a son of God, just like Jesus is the son of God. It doesn't mean we become God, but it does mean that we are God's children. And so, uh, but, but even as God's children, we're not perfect. But it says when he appears, that is when we see him, it says, then we shall be like him. Now we're like him substantially now, but we're not like him totally and perfectly, but then we will be. So when we appear before Jesus and see him at that moment, we will be transformed by him to be exactly like him in our moral character. We don't become God. We don't absorb his deity or anything like that, but we are perfected in his character. And so we become as sinless as Jesus is at the moment that we see him. So we die. And our souls separate from our bodies. Our soul appears before Jesus, and at the instant it appears before Jesus and we see Him, our souls are at that moment made perfect and we are made like Him morally. Okay? And then the last passage we want to look at is in Revelation 21, which is the very last book of the Bible, right at the end. Revelation 21. Verses 23 to 27, Revelation twenty one twenty three. Now, he's talking here about the new Jerusalem, the city of God that we're going to live in. And he says in verse 23, And the city had no need of the sun, neither of the moon, to shine in it, for the glory of God did lighten it, and the Lamb is the light thereof. And the nations of them which are saved shall walk in the light of it, and the kings of the earth do bring their honor and glory into it. Who who is there? Those who are saved. Verse 25, And the gates of it shall not be shut at all by day, and there shall be no night there. It will just be constant light from God. Verse 26, And they shall bring the glory and honor of the nations unto it. Now here's our verse, verse 27. And there shall in no wise enter into it, that is, into this city, into the new Jerusalem, Anything that defiles, neither whatsoever worketh abomination or maketh a lie, but they which are written in the Lamb's book of life. Now, the clear implication of verse 27 is that there will be no sinners in heaven. Now, there will be former sinners in heaven, but there won't be any sinners there that are currently sinners. Okay, So nothing that defiles can enter into heaven. So obviously, if we go into heaven after we die we have to be people who are free from sin, okay? Uh, Because were there sinful acts um, accomplished in heaven, it would defile that place. It would not be a holy place anymore. So what Jesus does is he takes the work that he's begun in us as Christians and separating us from our sins and he brings it to completion at that moment so that at that moment, We are completely, totally, and entirely separated from our sins. All right. So, those are the verses that tell us that the state of the souls of the righteous after death is one of perfect holiness. All right, any questions? Okay, let's look at the second thing then that that is involved in the state of the righteous. It says secondly about them is that they are received into paradise. Now, heaven is often called paradise. Paradise and heaven are not two different places. They're the same place, just different terms to refer to the same thing. Uh, Like we speak of having a house, and we speak of having a home, we're not talking about two different places, we're talking about the same thing. So paradise and heaven are the same thing. Now, um, there's three passages we want to look at here as well. The first one is Psalm 23, the book of Psalms, in the middle of your Bible, Psalm 23, the most famous of all the Psalms, The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. So, the book of Psalms, the psalmist is talking about how God is going to shepherd him throughout his life. And then he says that he's going to be with him in the valley of the shadow of death. All right. Notice Psalm 23, verse 1 The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He talks about how he's going to conduct him through life. He makes me to lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside the still waters, restores my souls. He leads me in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. And then he talks about what happens at the end. Verse 4, Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. For thou art with me, thy rod and thy staff, they comfort me. So even as the Christian approaches and goes through death, he's not afraid. Why? Because he knows uh, what's going to happen next. Verse 5, Thou preparest a table before me in the presence of mine enemies. Thou anointest my head with oil, my cup runneth over. So he will be freed from his enemies and provided for um, in the presence of his enemies. And what that means is on the day of judgment, all those enemies that so persecuted you in this life, um, they will see you being provided for by God while they are cast out. And now notice the next verse, verse six, um, surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. And I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. So the house of the Lord is the same as paradise. It's the same as heaven will dwell there forever. And even though we go through the valley, of the shadow of death, that's not the end on the other side is God's rich provision It's God's deliverance, ultimate, final, perfect deliverance from our enemies and our ultimate and final um, uh, existence in heaven where um, goodness and mercy um, will follow us all the days of our life here and ultimately will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. So um, that's the promise that there is to Old Testament believers. And by the way, Old Testament believers... Uh, we're very clear about the fact that there was life after death, about the fact that there was going to be a resurrection, and about the fact that they would go to be with God in heaven after they died. This is not a New Testament truth. Um, in Genesis 4 and verse 20, pardon me, Genesis 5, book of Genesis, chapter 5, verse 24, very first book of the Bible. Genesis 5.24, we see that um, Enoch walked with God, and he was not, for God took him. Now, that statement was a statement of the recognition that Enoch went to be with God. That when he left this earth, um, he didn't go out into oblivion, he went out to be with someone now he was taken bodily off the earth he didn't die like all the rest of us do Um, what that was about and why that happened um, is the subject of some debate but the point is is that way back in genesis chapter 5 it was understood that the end of this earthly existence was not the end of existence that people went to be with god and then in the book of job which is just before the book of psalms which is probably the oldest book of the bible in terms of its authorship in the book of job chapter 19 verse 25 job 19:25 through 27 It says, For I know that my Redeemer lives, and that he shall stand at the latter day upon the earth. And though after my skin worms destroy this body, yet in my flesh shall I see God, whom I shall see for myself, and mine eyes shall behold, and not another, though my reins be consumed within me. So here's a very clear statement very early in the history of humanity in which Job understood on no uncertain terms that though after he died, his body was going to be eaten by worms, yet in his flesh, he was going to see God. There was going to come a day of resurrection and he was going to see God face to face after his death in a resurrected body. So it's not like the resurrection is something like that is a New Testament doctrine that only Jesus brought. People understood from the very beginning that body and soul they would be with God in heaven face to face forever for eternity. And then in um, Psalm 73 book of Psalms again Psalm 73 verse 12 pardon me verse 24 Psalm 73 Twenty-four. psalmist is struggling a great deal with providential circumstances in his life. And uh, he then summarizes his life and what's going to happen afterward in Psalm 73 and verse 24. He says, Thou shalt guide me with thy counsel, and afterward receive me to glory. Whom have I in heaven but Thee? And there is none upon earth that I desire beside thee. My flesh and my heart fails, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. And so he knew God wasn't just his portion in this life, that God was going to be his portion forever. And that he would afterward be received into glory. So he knew when he went to the grave, that wasn't it. There was an afterward. And what was that afterward? He was going to be received into heaven to be with God. And so um, he knew that he had God in heaven, verse 25, Whom have I in heaven but thee? And there is none on earth I desire besides thee. So he had God on earth, and he was going to have God uh, when he went to heaven. All right? And then Psalm 16. Psalm 16, verses 9 to 11. Start out at verse 8, Psalm 16.8. He says, I have set the Lord always before me, because He is at my right hand, I shall not be moved. God was front and center in the psalmist's life. He was at His right hand, the place of honor. And therefore, He would not be moved. He would not be shaken by circumstances in His life. Now notice verse 9, Therefore my heart is glad and my glory rejoices. My flesh also shall rest in hope. That's his body. He says, For thou wilt not leave my soul in hell or in the grave. The word there in the original is Sheol. Neither wilt thou suffer thine holy one to see corruption. Thou wilt show me the path of life. In thy presence is fullness of joy at thy right hand. There are pleasures forevermore. So here the psalmist saying, you know, in this life, I have put my faith in God. And I know that I'm going to die. But my body isn't going to ultimately see final, total, and irredeemable corruption. It's going to be resurrected. And body and soul together, I will see God. I will uh, be in your presence. I'll experience fullness of joy at your presence. I'll be at your right hand. So notice in verse 8, he says, I've set the Lord at my right hand. And then in verse 11, I will be at the Lord's right hand. So you put God first in, in, in life now and you will be with him uh, in, in heaven later. So that's um, that was another expression of, of belief in the resurrection from the dead. Now, of course, this is applied directly to Christ prophetically, but nevertheless, it's true of every believer that they will not experience total, final, complete, ultimate, and, and uh, irreversible corruption, but that God will eventually gather that decayed body back together. He will resurrect it. He will reunite it with a soul, and they will be... In the presence of God, experiencing fullness of joy and eternal pleasure. Pleasures forevermore. Pleasure doesn't end when you die, it starts when you die. Heaven is a place of eternal pleasure and eternal joy. All right, and then Psalm 49, verse 15. We'll stop with this as far as the Old Testament goes. Psalm 49, 15. Well, let's we'll start out at verse 12, 49, 12, Nevertheless, man being in honor abides not. He is like the beasts that perish. Animals die, people die. This their way is their folly, yet their posterity approve their sayings. They think they're going to have some kind of eternal existence by building big monuments on the land. You can see that earlier in the psalm. Notice verse 14, like sheep, they are laid in the grave. Death shall feed on them and the upright shall have dominion over them in the morning and their beauty shall consume in the grave from their dwelling. That's pretty graphic language. And uh, about the decay of the body in the grave. Notice verse 15, but God will redeem my soul from the power of the grave for he shall receive me so they knew that even though their body was going to go in the grave just like any animal's body just like a sheep um, they knew that the soul would be redeemed from that and that god would receive their souls so i just pointed out those verses to say this is that the old testament believers understood very clearly that there was a paradise there was a house of god to dwell in that they were going to and they were going to go be with god and they were going to be conscious they were going to enjoy joy they were going to have pleasure um, They were going to be with God um, and they were going to look forward to the resurrection of their bodies when they would be reunited body and soul with God in heaven forever. So it's not some New Testament doctrine. It was believed and understood and revealed way back in the very beginning. Uh, Job understood it. People understood it from Enoch uh, being taken off the earth, body and soul, the body and soul. He was with God in heaven as we will be ultimately, when the resurrection finally occurs. Okay, well, let's look at some New Testament passages. Luke chapter 23 and verse 43. Matthew, Mark, Luke, the third gospel. Gospel of Luke, chapter 23 and verse 43. Now here Jesus is dying on the cross, and you recall that he was crucified between two thieves. And one of those thieves repented, of his sins, and asked Jesus to save him. <clears throat> we'll start out at verse 39. Luke 23, 39. It says, And one of the malefactors... The malefactor is a felon. Okay? Same thing. And one of the felons which were hanged railed on him, saying, If thou be the Christ, save thyself and us. So here's one of these guys hanging on the cross on the right hand side and he's just, he's just railing on Jesus who's hanging between these two thieves. Verse 40, but the other answering rebuked him saying, dost thou not fear God, seeing thou art in the same condemnation? And we indeed justly for we receive the due reward of our deeds. See, these two thieves uh, apparently had committed murder in the process of, of robbery. And that's why they were being hung on the cross. They were being put to death. And they said, We deserve it. We did the crime. Um, That's what he said. Uh, But this man, Jesus, has done nothing amiss. Verse 42. Then he said unto Jesus, Lord, remember me when thou comest into thy kingdom. And Jesus said unto him, Verily I say unto thee, Today thou shalt be with me in paradise. And of course, they all three died that day and what did jesus promise this man he said today you will be with me in paradise so where was this man going after he died he was going to paradise what happened to the other thief he went to hell he didn't believe in jesus jesus was right there the one thief did but the other thief didn't okay then a final passage luke 16 22. Gospel of Luke, chapter 16. We'll start out at verse 19. Luke sixteen nineteen. There was a certain rich man, which was clothed in purple and fine linen, and fared sumptuously every day. And there was a certain beggar named Lazarus, which was laid at his gate full of sores, desiring to be fed with the crumbs which fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, the dogs came and licked his sores. But Abraham said, Son, remember that thou in thy lifetime receivest thy good things, and likewise Lazarus evil things. But now he is comforted, and thou art tormented. Beside all this, between us and you, there is a great goal fixed, so that they which would pass from hence to you cannot, neither can they pass to us that would come from thence. And he said, I pray therefore, Father, that thou would send him to my father's house, for I have five brethren, you may testify unto them, lest they also come into this place of torment. Abraham said to him, They have Moses and the prophets, let them hear them. And he said, No, Father Abraham, but if one went unto them from the dead, they will repent. And he said to them, If they hear not Moses and the prophets, neither will they be persuaded that one rose from the dead. Now there's a lot there, but what we see is that both the saved and the wicked are conscious immediately after death. They go to one of two places here, paradise or the house of the Lord or heaven is described by the term Abraham's bosom. Uh, And the reason why is because Abraham is the father of, of faith uh, to us all. We're all descendants of Abraham. If we believe in Jesus, Jesus was a Jew. And by being born of Christ, by being born again, we're born spiritual Jews. And so we're all children of Abraham through faith in Jesus Christ, says in Galatians 3.26. So, um, what we see here is that this righteous Lazarus, when he died, where did he go? He went to paradise. Okay, uh, The thief went to paradise. Uh, the psalmist went to heaven to be with God, to dwell in the house of the Lord forever. So that's what happens to the righteous after they die. Not only are they made perfect in holiness, but also they dwell in paradise. That's what happens after they die. All right, any questions? Okay, well, next time we'll take up where we left off, and we'll look at the last three elements. They live with Christ, they behold the face of God, and they anticipate the redemption of their bodies. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for the wonderful prospect we have as Christians that the best is yet to come, that we have wonderful things to look forward to. And of course, no, we don't um, enjoy the process of death, but certainly we uh, look forward to the outcome of it in which we will be delivered from all of our sins and Our souls will be made perfect, and we will be without sin, and we will be like Jesus in that respect. And Father, we thank you that you've prepared a wonderful place for us, and when we die, we immediately go to that place. Lord, we pray that you might help us to live each day filled with hope and optimism and joy at the prospect of the wonderful home we have in heaven, the new Jerusalem where we are at the right hand of God and we are filled with joy and we enjoy spiritual pleasures forevermore and fellowship with God and communion with the saints. Father, we pray that these things might fill us with joy and peace and believing. And may they fill us with hope in Jesus' name. Amen.